Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Faria Amin, joined by Annabelle McRae. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at Beyond Headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Ontario eliminates its mask mandate for a variety of settings, including schools, restaurants, gyms, and stores today. While other jurisdictions within Canada and across the world have done away with equivalent or greater public health restrictions, residents of the province are expressing mixed feelings on this policy decision. Today, we are joined by two experts to discuss the factors that went into the decision to eliminate the mask mandate and what implications this may have for Ontario. Dr. Arjuman Siddiqui is a social epidemiologist. She is professor and division head of epidemiology at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, where she holds the Canada Research Chair in Population Health Equity. She also holds cross appointments in public policy and sociology at the University of Toronto and an adjunct appointment at the Gillings School of Global Public Health at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Dr. Siddiqui's research centers on understanding why health inequalities are so pervasive and persistent, and what can be done about this, with an emphasis on the role of societal conditions. In recent years, she has focused on evaluating the impact of specific social policies on population health and health inequalities, examining the causes of contemporary trends in population health and health inequalities, and reflections on concepts and methods used in health inequalities research. Dr. Siddiqui also engages with governmental and non-governmental entities, including the governments of Ontario and Canada, as well as the World Health Organization. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Siddiqui. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The first topic we wanted to discuss is the COVID-19 mandates in Ontario. The vaccine passport program ended on March 1st. The mask mandate is being lifted on March 21st today in a variety of settings, and then it will be lifted for remaining settings like public transit, long-term care homes, and other high-risk settings on April 27th. So just to start off, what are your general thoughts on the province's decision to lift the mask mandate? I think these are really important points you're making and an important question. And there's a couple of ways to think about this. One is to ask the question, what is the basis for the decision? So In judging the decision, I think it's really important that we're clear about what the basis is for kind of understanding how we think about it. And I think the primary concern I have is that lifting the mask mandate at this point seems very contrary to what the evidence seems to suggest would be prudent. And I'm being sort of mild about this. So if you look at a variety of indicators of COVID-19 spread, you see that there is no longer a decline in spread of COVID-19 in cases and so on. And if you look at the absolute numbers, the numbers of cases and so on that we have now are much higher than when we previously implemented mask mandates. And so it just doesn't resonate at all in relation to the evidence. And so if I'm being very objective about this, that's my sort of baseline thinking is that it just seems really unfortunate and and imprudent 
And that's an answer based on what I see in the science. Going off of that, I'm curious as to what factors go into deciding to lift restrictions. You've mentioned you don't think the evidence, the scientific data backs it up. So do you feel this decision was made more due to political pressures or do you still think the scientific data played a part in it? It's hard to see how the scientific data would play a part in a decision like this because I don't think the data backs this up. There is a discourse happening that questions whether there's a relationship between non-pharmaceutical interventions, meaning things like masking and distancing and spread of COVID. And that's a fairly contentious conversation, which I think makes a lot of assumptions. It kind of assumes away a lot of factors that play into the efficacy of non-pharmaceutical interventions. For example, people will say, well, really, it's only if you have chronic conditions or high levels of obesity that you find things like uh, masking and, and distancing to have an effect because then you're affecting people who are at risk. The problem with that only if kind of notion is that we have widespread chronic conditions, widespread obesity. And so you're talking about large swaths of the population. So it's hard to say that the evidence that decisions like this are rooted in the evidence because I don't think the evidence is there. I recently heard Boris Johnson try to answer this question about lifting mandates and so on. And someone sort of confronted him and said, can you point to the evidence where you found this? And he said something to the effect of, we've been listening to public health professionals and then rattled off a bunch of politicians and government officials. And so when push comes to shove and the people who are in charge of lifting these mandates are asked about this. It's very hard for them to produce a scientific trail for their decisions. It really does seem to be political and political is a rather large word in this context. So by political, we could mean economic, meaning that the motivation is to get the economy going and to get people back at work, whatever those consequences may be. There may be other motivations like normalizing life in order to run the economy, in order to sort of maintain some kind of social ordering or social reordering for whatever that's worth. Similar situation in the U.S. Recently, a prominent public health pundit who represents the government oftentimes and is on television a lot said something to the effect of, I'm so glad the CDC is listening to governors and local officials who are asking for mask mandates to be lifted. And it's wonderful to see that they're responsive and that these mandates are now being lifted. And her, actually her, the dean of her school, where she's employed as well as a professor, said that's not how public health should work. Public health agencies like the CDC should not be responsive to governors in order to decide what public health measures should be in place. And so there's clear signs from many jurisdictions that a lot of the removal of restrictions is related more to politics as a sort of broad umbrella term for maintaining some sort of economic, social, political order. 
Given your expertise as a social epidemiologist, I'm wondering what you think the potential impacts of lifting the mask mandate and getting rid of other public health mandates like the vaccine passport, how these will impact certain vulnerable groups within the general population. So immunocompromised people, children under five who aren't eligible to get the vaccine and other groups. Yeah, I think one of the things that we have lost sight of is that public health mandates are intended to protect society at large, but also intended to protect the most vulnerable amongst us. And so in some ways, what we're saying by lifting these mandates is that it's an, it, you, you're sort of individualizing risk. You're sort of saying we no longer are doing anything to be sort of socially obligated to each other and you carry your own risk. And I, I cannot imagine that this is going to be good for inequality. I think to the extent that the lifting of mandates is not going to affect people, the people it's not going to affect are probably people who are in more privileged conditions, who may be coming in and out of stores and in and out of spaces, but not being in them steadily. But the people who work there are going to be exposed constantly. And there's a whole conversation to be had about the basic idea that essential service workers were the most at risk during the pandemic and essential service workers carry certain characteristics. They tend to be non-white. They tend to be black and brown. They tend to be from low-income backgrounds. And that's something that that's there and entrenched regardless of whether we have mandates or not. They're the people who are always going to be most at risk regardless of what we do in public health. And that's wrong and a shame and unjust. And so there's that level to it. The next question is, if that's what we have on our plate right now, that the people doing those jobs have these characteristics, we can't change that instantly. The question is, what do we do to protect those folks to the extent that we can? And doing away with mandates in spaces where they work, doing away with mandates in spaces where they travel. In general, doing away with mandates when we could have mandates where we can stay distanced and keep the density of people in indoor spaces low to protect these folks who are basically allowing us to, to carry on with life. Doing away with those things to protect them is really disheartening. And it's in its injustice on top of injustice. So as I said, it's a basic injustice that we have such segregated labor markets to start with. But okay, we're in a pandemic and we're not going to fix that tomorrow. But on top of that, to say we don't really think we need to do this to be responsible to you because I want to get out and about. I'm sick of masking. This is an inconvenience for me. It's annoying, but it's life-saving for others. And, and to know that this is the discourse we're having is actually really, really disheartening. Given the lifting of the mask mandate, while there are individuals who will still plan to wear their masks even after the mandate is lifted, I'm curious as to what you think other measures, individuals, governments, and other stakeholders can and should take to ensure that case counts are kept low. Let me say something about the masking first, which is, I think we really need to figure out a way to have N95 masks available to everyone or something equivalent to that. 
I've been on campus, I have seen a lot of people without N95s, even though I think that's been recommended. And I think one way to rectify that is to make them very readily available on campus. Now, the other stuff is primarily related to controlling the amount of people who are in indoor spaces, congregating in indoor spaces, and particularly doing so over long lengths of time. And so if you were to ask me, I would say that anything that reduces the amount of time people spend indoors, particularly without masks, is critical. And an additional solution for that is really maintaining good air quality indoors and having really good ventilation systems, really good filtration. I thought of this because I was going to say in the spring and summer, at least hopefully a lot of doors and windows can be open, but there's a lot of spaces where that's not the case. And so I think if you were to ask people who specialize in infectious disease uh, control, which is not me, I think they would say to you that ventilation and filtration systems to maintain indoor air quality is really, really critical, really critical. Learning to live with COVID inevitably means abandoning the goal or strategy of COVID zero. So given the characteristics of the virus, do you think that the goal should be to reach COVID zero or is this too unrealistic now? Well, I'm not sure I am fully equipped to answer that, but let me give it a shot. I think one issue is that the characteristics of the virus change. And I think we've gotten to the point where somehow the message got out that Omicron is mild. And it spreads a lot, but it's mild, so it is what it is. We actually don't know what will happen with future variants. So if you ask virologists, they will tell you that viruses mutate, but we don't know what direction they mutate in. It's not like they always mutate downward to less potency, less seriousness, and so on. And so one issue is that we need to be vigilant because we simply don't know the characteristics fully and particularly not of new variants that may arise and asterisk new variants can arise more when you have more people interacting and congregating. So, so that's an issue. I think that if you were to step back in time, COVID zero could have happened. So part of this is where we got to this point because we didn't invest fully in control early on, that we had these sort of half measures that people followed or not. And in fairness, we didn't entirely know how the disease spread. So there was a theory about droplets at first, and now we know it's aerosolized, which is much more difficult to control given we didn't mask early and so on. But now that we're here, I think it's difficult to say if COVID zero is feasible, but I will say this, if you think about it on a continuum from doing nothing to doing something that would enable COVID zero, it's very clear to me that moving toward an interventionist strategy that protects people from being exposed is the way to go. Partly also because I think what has become less of a discourse is that there are other consequences of COVID that we don't fully understand. So even people who don't have symptoms but are exposed to COVID 
may have other sort of cognitive and other consequences down the line too. And so it does seem like even if COVID zero at this point would be difficult, we should really be thinking and aiming for as little transmission as possible. Maybe that's the best way to put it is that the principle of COVID zero may still apply, but definitely if you explicate that out more, the principle that should be operating is to minimize transmission as much as possible across the board and particularly protecting vulnerable people. It's been two years since the pandemic began and pandemic fatigue is very clear. While it's important to balance the priorities of getting back to normal or living with COVID and also maintaining public health, I'm wondering if you think there are any alternative policy options that could achieve this balance. Yes, I do. In my mind, part of what's happened is that people have engaged in this discourse as if they're opposing goals. One is to make the economy run and to keep people employed and earning. And the other is to move toward COVID zero effectively, or or to at least minimize transmission. And I don't see those as opposing forces if you put the right policies in place. At the beginning of the pandemic, very quickly, we introduced SERP, the COVID emergency response benefit. And it's remarkable how quickly that was brought on board when people realized that a large swath of individuals would lose their jobs or had lost their jobs due to pandemic restrictions. Those kinds of policies enable us both to protect people economically and to control the spread of COVID-19. And in some ways, there's a basic issue, which is that if COVID-19 spreads, the economy is going to have to be a halt anyways, because you're going to have a lot of death and disease at time too, meaning sometime after you lift mandates and open up the economy. So in that way, the issue of opening up doesn't make sense. But I do hear the concern that if you tell everyone to stay home, that means a lot of people lose their livelihoods, people who run restaurants, There's all kinds of ways that COVID restrictions can really impact livelihoods. I don't know if there's any reason that we cannot economically bolster people through this pandemic. We have lots of times where we come up with cash for all kinds of things. And it's kind of beyond my comprehension that this is not one of those times where we could do that. Another really, really clear one that is sort of in the same vein is paid sick leave. Not having paid sick leave for essential workers is just, it's it's hard to even comprehend. So in some ways, what we're saying is that not only are we willing to let you suffer and potentially die, we're very open to disease spread, illness, death, as a trade-off for paying a very modest amount for someone to stay home. These are policies that could protect people, protect populations, stop the spread of COVID, keep the economy going. There's so many policies that would enable both. And I think we have to think about 
what the basis is of the kinds of policies we make and the kinds of policies we reject. Paid sick leave has been bantied about all pandemic to no avail. And if we can't get paid sick leave during a pandemic past, we're in some trouble. I think we're in some policy trouble. Our imagination about what policies make sense when, who is deserving. We have some serious thinking to do about the people who are in charge of these decisions and how they're making them. Those were all of my questions for today. So thanks so much for joining us. Your insights have been extremely interesting. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Peter Uni is a professor at the Department of Medicine and the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation at the University of Toronto, as well as the director of the Applied Health Research Centre at the Li Ka Shing Knowledge Institute of St. Michael's Hospital. Dr. Uni also holds a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Clinical Epidemiology of Chronic Diseases. He is a graduate of the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Bern in Switzerland, completed his training in internal medicine at various hospitals in Switzerland, and was a research fellow at the Department of Social Medicine at the University of Bristol in the UK. Dr. Uni has been serving as the Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table since July 2020. Since March 2020, he has worked nearly exclusively on clinical trials, observational studies, basic research, and science communication related to COVID-19. So welcome, Dr. <coughs> Uni. Thank you so much for joining me today. So we're going to hop right in. On March 1st, the vaccine passport was lifted, and on March 21st, the mask mandate will be lifted in most indoor public settings, with the remainder of all settings having their mask mandate lifted on April 27th. So I just wanted to start off with uh, your general opinion on the lifting of the mask mandate, and then we'll head into some deeper questions. I think uh, what is important to uh, realize that you're really just uh, going into one direction to really step-wisely lift all remaining restrictions. And that's absolutely the right thing to do. We need to be aware of that, that there's no possibility out there to uh, suppress Omicron. So this variant has become so transmissible that any other option such as, you know, COVID zero approaches that now fail completely in China, for example, are just no options at all anymore. So the landscape has changed, but it also now just has accelerated this process a bit into what we wanted to achieve all along. This would be that we achieve enough immunity in uh, the population that we would not need any restrictions anymore and that we at least, you know, in uh, winter months like now, would then uh, just uh, be able to control um, the infections relatively well so that we wouldn't see the healthcare system overwhelmed without restrictions. And that's the point. And that's what's happening now. Now, it's a question of mentality when to exactly uh, make the decision to lift mask mandates. Um, I was uh, relatively clear in the past that I felt um, it would uh, probably be appropriate 
you know, in my conditioning as a scientist, that's relatively clear to accumulate more data and to make this decision um, a data-driven decision. But uh, on the other hand, we also need to be very clear that uh, the last few reopening steps actually worked pretty well. We stayed stable since uh, mid-February with wastewater. We plateaued. And uh, we probably, based on you know, us triangulating the numbers right now, have around 15,000 to 20,000 infections in Ontario by day, every day. And uh, the point is now, okay, are we ready to lift the mask mandates? We will see. Um, how this will go. Right now, we see a bit of an uptick in wastewater. We only will have full data available that will help us to understand where we're going the next few days, then uh, what the full impact is of uh, the last reopening step. So um, how are we doing now with the next step? It will entirely depend on every one of us. No? So if we pretend the pandemic is over, then just say, okay, we uh, drop masks as t-shirts on a beach and we go back to pre-pandemic behavior with our contacts, probably will backfire. We need to be aware of that. We see that happening now in places such as my original home country, Switzerland, where um, 17th of February, if I remember correctly, everything was lifted. Signal for people who were in a completely different mindset than our population here in Ontario. Um, okay, everything is back to normal. We don't care anymore. And they see a U-turn, you know, with cases go up quite dramatically again at a completely different level than what we have here. Um, so if we don't do that, and if we just say, okay, we take it easy, one step after the next, you know, we uh, increase our contacts only somewhat. We still wear masks if things get really crowded, at least, etc. This all will help. And if we do all of that well, this means that we relatively likely will see a bit of an uptick, but not to an extent that it would become challenging for our healthcare system. That's the point here. So you briefly went into this with regards to the last few reopening steps working successfully and the data that you guys are gathering from the wastewater. I was wondering if you could just delve a little further into the factors that led to the decision to lift the mask mandate at this time. To be honest with you, I wasn't involved there, you know, so uh, typically the last few months, uh, Dr. Moore and I have uh, mostly uh, relatively informal contacts, but we, we stay in contact nearly daily. Uh, for a few days, just around that time, we didn't have much contact and the time point of uh, the communication and the, uh, the time point of lifting the mask mandates came to surprise for me too. But, you know, again, uh, we're advising anyway, and there's no such rule implemented that we always need to discuss every single decision there. So I believe based on what I heard, approach or interpretation was, we basically did stepwise lifting of uh, restrictions and we continue to be okay and stable and we are aware of that we need to continue to build immunity and this immunity will happen through a combination of continued vaccination at a relatively low level which is a bit unfortunate and infections and this combination will eventually just you know with the good weather that is coming as well give us um, enough immunity and enough protection because people move outside with better weather, that we will be able to ride out, you know, this residual bump or small wave that we might see. The point is, you know, when we look at um, places like Iceland, successful with their vaccine rollout, even than we were, and they're considerably better with third doses, same for Denmark. 
if you really lift everything and go back to normal, you could see quite considerable peaks. But the point is that you need to achieve roughly, we see that, and that's also what our models show, a priori, that you need to achieve roughly 45% of the population infected. And uh, a lot of people, of course, vaccinated before you start to peak a wave, uh, before we, uh, you start to reach a peak, sorry, I should uh, correct myself, in a wave, and case counts start to go down. No? Now, what we did, we basically, thanks to all of us, we basically achieved to break the wave early. This was uh, mainly because of people changing their behavior fundamentally, even before New Year's Eve. And uh, we reached much less when we peaked and went down. You know, uh, the downwards trend was probably completely related to the public health measures that we took beginning of January. And uh, the entire Omicron wave, which was a controlled wave, resulted probably in about 30% of the population being infected when we triangulate these numbers. So what this means is we probably need another 15 to 20% to go. And uh, if this now happens relatively slowly, and if we hopefully get a lot of people now just to get vaccinated with a third dose, we have achieved 7.1 million third doses. That's okay, but it's not brilliant. So if we can get another 2 million to get vaccinated relatively swiftly, just use all the uh, you know open slots there are, even though mass vaccination is over. And we will also see that in inevitable uh, infections, this will continue to contribute to immunity. And this means that once we reached probably you know, perhaps 500,000 to 1 million more people vaccinated and more people, you know, roughly about, I would say, 2 million people infected, then things will flatten and probably go down. And perhaps we're even a bit early. And what we will see is that the weather will get, will be really nice. People move outdoors, enjoy barbecues outdoors, etc., enjoy the patios. And then we might not even make it to these 45%. I think that's relatively unlikely. I think it will happen this way. And this also means, you know, uh, uh, most people who have never had an exposition with the virus and neither with a vaccine, they will eventually now get infected during this wave. And we just need to be aware of that. This means, you know, a lot of the um, inequities that we're aware of, you know, that people who have experienced systemic racism, authoritarian political systems, were disenfranchised and therefore all justifiably distrust the system. Those people tend to uh, be vaccinated less frequently. And that's the people who will then again be at risk. Also, when these infections invariably find all the pockets in the province, will be at risk of experiencing serious outcomes. And that's one of the challenges. And that's also, you know, one of the things that really pain me. We're not there that we're really able to see fundamental changes in inequity. Deaths were always most frequent in the most marginalized communities. So you briefly touched on immediately following once the mask mandate has been lifted, there may be a bit of an increase in the case number. How can we be sure or can we be sure that this initial increase will not lead to a subsequent fifth wave? Well, it depends on us. You know, to be honest with you, there's no absolute certainty here. So far, our population has reacted in a dynamic manner. 
If we now move forward and increase our contacts and change our behavior all only moderately, then it's relatively likely that this will be okay, that we will be okay. Even if we just were to go back to, uh, you know, pre-pandemic states, probably even then because of the immunity we have, have gained during the last few months, we will not see the same steep slope of the wave. But we need to be aware of that. You know, we could still, if we really just pretend that everything goes back to normal, we could still see quite a considerable wave. So it will, in the end, depend on us. And it will depend on the communication strategy we have and the common understanding in this province. So there has been a very broad response provincially based on the decision to lift masks. Why do you think that some are so strongly opposed to the lifting of the mask mandate? It's very interesting, no? So we're um, really seeing polls that suggest that people don't see uh, much of a problem with uh, keeping these masks a bit longer. We see more among political decision makers that uh, there seems to be this tendency towards lifting everything now. It's not necessarily the population indeed. I think people are aware of that masks are not such a big deal no? for most of us. You need to be aware of that. For somebody who is deaf or hard of hearing or has, you know, some language disability, masks are a real problem. But that's a small minority and we would be able to accommodate that. No? I can understand if people who say, okay, we go two to three weeks longer. I can understand that. Remember, we can also just have strong recommendations. It's not black or white. Once more, as long as we just don't drop the masks as T-shirts on the beach, we should be okay. Nobody forces us to drop the mask now. It's optional. And I would, for myself, just see very clearly, it's also what I will recommend to my two small children here, just continue to wear a mask a little bit longer. And that, that's uh, how we will approach that, for instance, as a family. School boards can do the same. They can make strong recommendations. So based on the range of opinions that's presented, how do you think that this has impacted the perception that the public holds towards the lifting of such restrictions? The public is hearing different perspectives coming from different directions, and I think it can all be a little confusing at times. Which just shows you that uh, this is not black or white. You know, that's one aspect. It, we're in a completely different phase of this pandemic means we have probably a broader range of choices than before. That's really important to realize, you know, we're two years ago in really challenging shape. No immunity, no drugs, no vaccines, nothing. No, that's the start. We didn't have a clue where this is going. We made it remarkably far. Now we have just much more options in a way. And now it's, you know, it becomes a bit of a mentality question, how risk averse you are, how data driven you are, what you're actually doing. And I think that's what's a bit reflected. It's not black or white anymore. But, you know, to be honest with you, to be very clear, if we talk about, you know, the tremendous damage we cause with masks in schools that I hear from some colleagues, I'm still lacking the data if we talk about, you know, junior kindergarten or senior kindergarten and upwards. Would it be really such a challenge to keep masks for a few weeks longer before we lift them? Would this be tremendously 
life-altering, you know, if we did that a few weeks longer. I believe not. And I do not think there are good data to indicate that masks typically in children from junior kindergarten grade onwards are an issue. For sure. And with regards to that lack of data, do you think that is just a factor that has to deal with the amount of time that might take to gather that data? Or do you think there isn't the dedication towards finding that right now? We had three-week intervals of lifting the restrictions, and that actually worked well. And we even were speeding up a bit. And we really continued to be stable. Things looked okay. We need to be aware of that. And, uh, you know, then there's the possibility just to stick to the three-week interval. And obviously, that was done. And uh, I can understand that. I uh, Do I completely agree with it? No, but that's my conditioning as a scientist. No, So I'm, I'm not too worried about that. We just need to monitor carefully. You know, in the unlikely case that you would see wastewater signals explode in the next few days or weeks, we would, of course, signal that immediately and recalibrate our models and see where we're going and we could still react. All right. So just to confirm, so seeing that following the lifting of the mandates, if the wastewaters were to signal a change in the direction, do you think one of the solutions might be to head back to that place that we were earlier in January with regards to kind of putting those restrictions back into place? No, it would just be, so first of all, it would need to be, you know, a tremendous and again, explosive growth as seen in wastewater on a provincial level or in a specific region of the province where we start to see, oh, we have a challenge and then we could react. What would this reaction be? maximally, basically uh, reverting back to uh, the, the situation immediately before March 1st. So nothing tremendous. Um, but actually, without uh, uh, reimposing the uh, vaccine certificates, because the certificates, the way they currently you know, have a requirement for two doses, wouldn't make a difference anyway. So it would mainly be masking. And perhaps, you know, if there's a real issue there, capacity limits in certain venues or so, it would be very light. We're not talking about going back to anything like what we had in January. That's very, very important to realize. My last question to finish up here, and if you have any extra comments, feel free to add those in. So of course, as you've mentioned, it isn't a black and white situation that we can't really be sure of anything. But what direction do you see COVID-19 evolving towards over the next two months? Is this possibly the end of the pandemic? It's not the end of the pandemic. That's a certainty. If somebody suggests that's the end of the pandemic, they don't know what they're talking about. We need to be very clear about that. Okay. So what will be happening next? If we're a bit lucky, which is the go through, we will have this bump, the good weather will kick in and we will have a wonderful late spring, early late spring, summer, early autumn, and things will just be fine. We'll be like normal actually. And, um, what then will happen most likely is once we start to move in indoors, you know, this will start to be a bit of a challenge, typically mid-October when temperatures drop. We might start to see a little bit of something coming and this will could continue to evolve into an infectious wave again on the Northern Hemisphere, which is by definition still a pandemic. This infectious wave might be, if we leave it uncontrolled or unchecked, uh, a bit lower than what we saw before, but we could still see as many as, you know, perhaps 45% of people in getting infected in a season, which is considerably higher than perhaps the 15% of symptomatic infections we're seeing for flu, the influenza. And um, even if perhaps 
the risk of serious outcomes because of the immunity we reach, mainly through vaccination, would start on average to be comparable, given infection, to be comparable with uh, influenza, since we have perhaps three times more infections, symptomatic infections with uh, COVID than with influenza, it could still be a real strain for the, the healthcare system. What's the consequence? The consequence is that we really need to be ready um, to you know, have a mass vaccination rollout again late autumn, and uh, all the uh, the other aspects we already talked about could come back. Light interventions. It's just about vaccines, masking, plus optimizing the ventilation. We will go through this wave. If we're lucky, we only have this. If there's a new variant coming, we could have a summer wave. It would be the same principle and the same approach we would need. So uh, we would we would basically make sure that we have mass vaccination, perhaps vaccine certificates, masks, perhaps mask mandates, and in addition that we would play the cards of uh, antiviral treatments and perhaps of antibodies, depending on the situation, and make sure that we bring these antibodies to the people who are at highest risk, which includes marginalized communities with low vaccine uptake, if people are in a higher age groups, etc., depending on that. So that will be a challenge. Let's assume we don't have a summer wave and just have this, uh, you know, at the end of uh, 2022. And um, we would then probably again go through this wave. It will be much more compatible with normal life than what we've seen in the past, including just a few weeks ago. And we probably would then, if we're a bit lucky, repeat that a few times just during the winter months. Always a bit less because we build up always a bit more immunity. And uh, after a few years, if we're a bit lucky, we would start to uh, move into, um, you know, this uh, space called endemicity that would be characterized by perhaps only about 15 to 20% of uh, people experiencing infections in uh, any given season with the risk of serious outcomes being comparable with flu or considerably lower even than that. And no, you know, tremendous risk for the healthcare system to get overwhelmed. That's when endemicity is reached. When will that be? Two years from now, three years from now, four years from now? I couldn't possibly tell and nobody can. Once again, that was Dr. Siddiqui and Dr. Uni. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss the end of COVID. Today's show was produced by Annabelle McRae and Faria Amin. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on the Spotify and Apple podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at B-Y-O-N-D underscore H-E-A-D-L-I-N-E-S. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.